0: You've probably seen the matrix that rates things according to if they're important and if they are urgent. Usually there are four quadrants, right? One quadrant represents things that are important and urgent. That should be first on our list, right? And then you have things that are important but not urgent, things that matter but can wait. And then you have things that are not important but are urgent. And there's some things if you're going to do them, you just have to do them now, even if they don't really matter. And then you have things that are not important and not urgent, and that should be the last on our list, right? I'm going to talk with you this morning about something that is definitely in the urgent and priority quadrant. I say that not because I think it's important, but because Jesus said it is important. In in fact, in our passage today, Jesus emphasizes the ultimate priority, the importance of what we're going to look at. And he uses even what I would call very severe hyperbole to make this point. So what is it that's so important? What he says is so important is that we pursue a life of doing what is right. You could say we pursue a life of purity of holiness, of doing what he teaches. And, and, and that is what he's going to do. He's going to emphasize why it is so important for us to live a life where we behave in the right way, say the right things, do the right things, where we live out purity. And so let's look at that passage of scripture that Mark just read. I hope you have your Bible opened to the gospel of Mark chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 42. And the question we're going to answer is, the question Jesus puts the answer to is, why is it so important to pursue purity, to seek holiness, to live the right way, doing the right things? And there are three reasons he gives us. The first reason is this, my actions affect others. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's pretty severe, isn't it? (laughs) Now, Jesus is building on, actually, what he's been saying. In fact, today's passage that we're looking at, chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, is actually a continuation of what Pastor Zach began last week going back to verse 30. It's the second part of it. Mark 9, 30 through uh, through 50 is really one unit of teaching, but it's got so much stuff in it. Pastor Zach and I wanted to break it into two sections so we could do it justice. In fact, you don't really see this reflected in the ESV, the translation I use in verse 42, but in the Greek, the first word in that sentence is actually a conjunction, the word And. This is why some translations like the King James Version or the NIV begin with, and, because he's building on, he's reinforcing what he's been talking about. Uh, What Pastor Zach talked about last week, verses 30 through 41, he kind of laid out his teaching about what he wanted them to do, and now he's emphasizing why it is so important to do it in our passage, verses 42 through 50. And he tells his disciples, as you remember back in 30, just kind of set the context. He tells his disciples that he's going to be killed on the cross and he's going to be raised to life. And then in verses 33 through 37, if you were here last week, you remember Pastor Zach talking about that, the disciples got into an argument about which of them was the greatest of all. And Jesus corrects them about that. And he tells them, if you want to be the greatest of all, you have to humble yourself and become the servant of all. And he uses an illustration and an object lesson to make this point, and that is a little child. Look, let's back up a little bit and look with me at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. And so in verse 42, uh, the first verse in our passage Jesus goes back to that object lesson of a child, only he calls him a little one. But he's not talking about a literal child. He's talking about believers, other Christians, who may be less mature in their faith, who may be vulnerable in their faith. Uh, and, and he's saying, we must act in such a way that we don't create a stumbling block to cause them to stumble in their faith or to sin. The problem really is, is the disciples had just been acting in such a way as to be a stumbling block to others. First of all, back in verse th- uh, 34, they'd been arguing with each other about which was the greatest, and, and such prideful boasting was not a God-honoring, helpful kind of way to behave. In fact, it could be a stumbling block to others. One disciple's boasting about how great he was, for example, uh, might have caused, let's say, Thomas, one of the other disciples, to become jealous, and jealousy is a sin. Peter's boasting about being one of the closer, the three inner core disciples might have caused one of the other disciples to feel um, maybe that they were less of a disciple, maybe that they were left out. It might have discouraged them to actually turn away from following Jesus. And so they were behaving in a way that I would call is stumble-causing behavior. And also then in verse 38, we're told that the apostle John found someone who was casting out a demon in Jesus' name and he tried to stop the guy saying, you can't do that because you're not following we apostles. And that could have discouraged him and caused him to quit wanting to follow and serve Jesus. And so Jesus says to these guys, don't do that. And here he emphasizes why it is so important not to be a stumbling block. In fact, he says it's such a bad thing, it's better to have a millstone put around your neck. And the word he uses for millstone there is actually a word that means millstone belonging to a donkey. You know, they had some of these these millstones that were used to grind grain that were small enough that a person could actually turn them and use them but there were some industrial sized millstones that took a strong animal like a donkey to turn it to grind the grain. And that's what he's talking about here, this this big one. It's a graphic way of saying God holds us accountable for how our behavior impacts others. I thought about where I grew up. I grew up in a part of Texas nobody knows about, the wet part of Texas. The part of Texas that's on the very southeast corner, my home maybe less than two miles from the border of Louisiana, on the Gulf of Mexico, where there's rivers and bios and marsh. And to get to our town, you always had to cross some form of water. For example, the main highway that comes through the town I grew up in, uh, coming from the west, if you were to go there, you'd be coming from the west. You would come to the Natchez River where there's a ship channel, and they have a bridge that goes over the ship channel, lands very, very flat. And so the bridge goes straight as an arrow up and then down. From end to end, it's a mile and a half long, three-quarters of a mile up, three-quarters of a mile down. And they called it the Rainbow Bridge. If you go through the town, you come to another bridge, a much more modest, humble bridge. This was over Cal Bio. And yes, that's the name of it, Calbio. <laughs> In fact, there really isn't a way to get into my hometown without crossing a bridge of some form or fashion or another. So what do you think they called this city? Anyone wanna guess? Bridge City, because there are so many bridges, right? There was where the Calbio Bio Bridge was, a marina. It was where people would launch their boats, tie up their boats, come and refuel their boats. And on a cypress tree out in the bio, someone had put a big sign which said this, every boat is responsible for its wake. If someone, which often happened I would say, if someone came through that little bio in a Super-powered boat going at a high rate of speed, too close to the marina, and they created a big wake which damaged somebody's boat or property, they were legally responsible to pay for it. It's the idea that we are accountable for how our life impacts others. And this is what Jesus is saying. My behavior, my words, my actions have an impact on other people. And you too are a person of influence. You may not think about it that way sometimes, but every one of us, our life creates a wake that, that touches the lives of others. And so people are watching us. Parents, those of you who are parents, you may feel like sometimes your children never listen to you, and they may not listen to you, <laughs> but they are watching you in ways that you would never believe and paying attention to what your life speaks into their life. Our life affects others. Paul says it this way. In Romans 14, he says, "'So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore,' this is what we're going to give an account for, "'Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, "'but rather decide never to put a stumbling block "'or hindrance in the way of a brother.'" The church in Corinth had a problem, and Paul wrote to address it, and it had to do with church members who were just thinking about themselves, what they wanted, what was their legitimate right. It had to do with eating meat, meat that had been sacrificed in a pagan temple. And Paul said, a good steak is a good steak. (laughs) I don't have any problem eating that. But the problem was there were some young Christians who had just come out of that kind of pagan idolatry and they would be tempted to leave following Christ and go right back to it if they were to get involved in eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, but take care that this right of yours, and notice, it's a a genuine right of theirs. It was their right to eat what they wanted Wanted to eat. And there is nothing wrong with him eating it. But he says this Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. "'Thus sinning against your brothers "'and wounding their conscience when it is weak, "'you sin against Christ. "'Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, "'I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble.'" Wow, that is serious sacrifice, isn't it? And it makes me wonder, being such a selfish person who just thinks about what I want, do I really value how my life impacts others? Do I really care about that? And so God help us realize, first of all, pursuing a life of purity, doing the right thing matters because my actions affect others. And then there's a second reason Jesus gives why this is important, and it's this, because sin and its consequences are serious. Look with me at verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. First of all, let me emphasize, Jesus is not being literal uh, about mutilating yourself. God speaks through the Old Testament very clearly that we should never mutilate our bodies in a way like that. And also, perhaps even more importantly, in some ways, Uh, Sin is really rooted in our heart, in our inner being, not in an appendage. You can get rid of something, like you can take out an eye, but it's not going to keep you from being envious or lusting or some other um, sin you might associate with what we look at. You you could remove other parts of your body, but it's really not going to help because it all grows out of the heart. So, Jesus is using hyperbole and metaphor to make a, a, a point. And I want to be clear about that because one early Christian theologian, uh, some might be called a church father, just a couple hundred years after Jesus, a man by the name of Origen, he actually m- mutilated himself. He actually castrated himself. You wonder what kind of sins he was struggling with, right? <laughs> castrated himself because of this, right? This is not what Jesus is saying to do. We do learn three. I couldn't resist the pastor's I shouldn't, I know. <laughs> he, I, I would love to know how Pastor Zach pray, prays every time I'm gonna be preaching. <laughs> there are three things we learn about sin in what Jesus says here. And the first is this. We're tempted to sin in all kinds of ways, uh, not just in, in one thing, right? He talks about uh, the hand, which could signify what is done, the foot, which could signify where you go, the eye that could signify what you look at or what you give your attention to. Uh, the point is he's covering everything in our life, that we all experience various temptations of various kinds. It's not just one kind of temptation. Haven't you found that to be true? You're tempted in all kinds of ways and struggle with all kinds of ways. And just when you think you're really making progress, that's when something happens and you get tripped up, right? Pastor Zach and I were at a luncheon with some other pastors this week, and one of the pastors talked about a man who got the humility award at his church. They gave him a little award for being so humble. He wore it around his neck the next week, and they took it away from him for being so proud of it. (laughs) That's just kind of the way it goes, isn't it? Right when I'm doing well in something, I stumble in some other way. And that's the way of temptation. It covers every aspect, every door, every window in your life. Something's trying to get in to make you trip up and and stumble in your faith. Secondly, what Jesus is showing here is that we are continually tempted to sin. In fact, relentlessly tempted to sin. Three times you'll notice Jesus says something about a source of temptation that he says, quote, causes you to sin, right? Your hand causes you to sin. Your foot causes you to sin. Your eye causes you to sin. That verb, cause, is a verb that means ongoing, repeated, tempting, not just a one-time temptation. And that's the way of temptation. It is relentless. You remember when Jesus went through that very intense temptation that he experienced in the wilderness. Luke tells us, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune moment. Jesus was never done. Satan didn't finish that temptation. And this is true of us, uh, that always there's this repeated ongoing pressure Ongoing luring, ongoing temptation in our life. And that's just the way of temptation. Now, um, I should probably say when Jesus says these things cause you to sin, he doesn't mean cause in the sense that you're forced to do something, you're overwhelmed, and you had no, no way of, of not sinning. He's talking about a source of temptation. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And the challenge for me is whenever temptation comes knocking on my door, I don't look for that way of escape. I want to see what's behind the door. <laughs> but That's an excuse, isn't it? But the third thing we see is really the main point Jesus is making, and this is what he emphasizes, and is that sin and its consequences are truly very, very serious. Jesus contrasts three times life for the kingdom of God, and he puts that in contrast to hell. Now, the word he uses for hell here is not just a word for the place of the dead. That would be Hades, right? But the word that he uses here is what theologians would call a place of eschatological punishment, or you could say final, eternal punishment. The word you may know is Gehenna, which means Valley of Hinnom. There was a valley on the south side of Jerusalem that wicked kings, kings that were unfaithful and corrupt like Ahaz, would use to go and make human sacrifices the Jewish people would take their own dear children and burn them as an offering sacrifice to the god Moloch. And that's where this happened. But then there was a godly king, a king, Josiah, who wanted to bring reforms in and to prevent that from happening. And so he desecrated that place. He turned it into a garbage and sewage collection site so that no one would ever go there to make sacrifices of any kind to any god. And and that place, that valley, came to be used as a metaphor for the very thing that Jesus is using it for, a symbol of divine eternal punishment. Now, you might know Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, who talked about love, you know, Jesus, who is this wonderful teacher who welcomed little children, He talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Why do you think that would be? I tell you why I think it is. Because Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. He came to die on the cross where he became sin for us. And God turned his back on him. And in ways I don't fully understand, he experienced the full wrath and punishment, just punishment of sin, he tasted the reality of hell. And he knew that that was going to happen. And he did that so that he could offer anyone who would turn to him in simple faith and trust him could experience forgiveness and receive, rather than hell, the other thing he contrasts against hell, life. They could become a part of the kingdom of God For all eternity, people make light of sin. Jesus never did that because he paid the price for our sin. And he knew how serious sin and its consequences really, really are. Notice how he describes hell in verse 48 where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's quoting Isaiah 66 24 here. Jesus isn't just making this up. Everything he said was true, but he wasn't just making this up. He knew his Bible. He knew what God had been revealing about the reality of hell. It's not popular in our day to talk about hell, is it? But it is a reality. It is a place of eternal punishment. In Revelation, it talks about it also as a place where the devil and his demons will be punished for all eternity as well. Now, I know today it's popular for people to think about faith as an optional thing. They say, hey, listen, if faith works for you, that's fine. But it doesn't matter whether you really follow Jesus or not. It's a personal choice. For some people, it works, and some people, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. But that's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that there is the reality of sin, and every one of us are sinners, and its consequences are what he offers is life, eternal life and forgiveness. So Paul writes in Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death. And he doesn't mean just physical death. He's talking about eternal suffering for sin. The wages of sin is death. But thank God it didn't stop there. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord who experience sin most fully and its consequences for our sake so that we don't have to. So the point is Jesus is making is this. Sin matters and its consequences matter. It's serious. Now, I I do wanna add just real quick. In light of all the other things Jesus says in his teaching, it's clear he's not saying, first of all, that we earn our way into heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. And he's not talking about if you sin, you lose your salvation if you're a follower of his. It's clear that that's not what he's talking about. He just wants us to understand why is it important to do what he says to do. And the reason is to not do what he's teaching is sin, and sin and its consequences are important. And my actions affect others. But there's a third reason why he says it's important to pursue purity in our life, and it's this. God is at work in my life refining me. He wants to refine us in our life. Look with me at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, Jesus, when he says everyone, I think he's talking about his followers here. And to be salted is a good thing. Salt's a good thing. I know those of us who you know, want to watch our blood pressure, you know, we, we try to avoid too much salt, Right? But salt's kind of a good thing, right? If you put salt on something in the right way, it doesn't make the food taste saltier. It enhances and elevates the taste of the food itself that you're eating. For example, you put a little salt on a tomato, and a tomato tastes more (laughs) tomatoey. You put a little salt uh, salt on something else, and and it just elevates. It intensifies the taste of whatever it is that you're eating, Not only that, in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators, so they would put salt on food to make it last. So it had this preserving kind of quality. And also, salt was used at various sacrifices. You would have to add salt to the sacrifice at the temple to make that offering pleasing and acceptable to God. This is the idea that Jesus is tapping into. To be salted and notice it's God who salts us this is this is a passive kind of thing to be salted is to become first of all the person that you are created by God to be to become more fully yourself to bring out who you were made to be in God's image to be salted is to be preserved for all eternity <laughs> to be a preservative in the culture we're living in, to spread what is good and life-giving. To be salted is to live a life that is pleasing to God and acceptable to God. And, and, and so he, he he every follower of Christ will be salted. That is the work of God in our life. And we'll be salted with fire. Now, it's interesting. I, I think probably what he's referring to here is the best means of refining anything, uh, and, and that is that God uses trials and persecution and hardship to shape our character and to grow our faith. That's what it means to be salted by faith. This is why Jesus began back in verse 30 talking about his death on the cross because the, the, the way of, of God working in and through us usually involves pain and suffering and sacrifice and persecution, but God uses that. God is at work in our life to refine us, to improve us, to make us more like him. But we, we can't do that. We can't experience that if we continue in sin. Jesus is holy and pure. He never sinned. And he's working in your life and in my life to make us to become like him. And if we choose, rather than to cooperate with him, If we choose to resist his work in our life and continue in sin, then we won't have the blessed benefit of his work refining us. And so the question for me is, am I gonna cooperate with the work of God in my life or am I gonna hinder it by choosing to continue to do things that are disobedient and displeasing to him? And then Jesus concludes in verse 50. Look with me at verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt... Has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So he wants to refine us. He wants to, so to speak, make us salty. Right? And salt can never actually lose its flavor. Uh, salt never can be to lose its flavor. Flavor, excuse me. But in the ancient world, a lot of times salt was, as they as they brought it in from the sea, was mixed with other impurities. And it was possible for the salt to be washed away, and you'd be left with only the impurities, which were utterly useless. And so the question I have to ask myself is, do I want to be a useless Christian? Do I want to be someone that doesn't please God, that I'm utterly useless? That's what continuing in sin does in our life. It keeps us from being fruitful and useful. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. Unless we maintain the purity of our lives and purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our life will have no preserving influence on the corrupt world. You remember Jesus said we are to be salt and light in this world? That's that we are to have a a life-giving influence in this world. But we can't do that if we continue in sin. We become impure, like salt that's mixed with impurities. It's like covering the light with a basket. We cease to shine. And so what should we do? Uh, Jesus says, first of all, have salt in yourself. Be done with sin. Run from temptation. Seek to do what Jesus teaches and to please him. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, "'As obedient children do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance,' But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what God is at work in our lives to do, to make us like him, to be holy. And that means we have to run from temptation and turn from sin. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. And then he makes an interesting application at the very end. Look at the last part of verse 50. He says this. Okay, have salt within yourself and be at peace with one another. Now here Jesus comes back to full circle. Remember where it all began? It began with the disciples arguing with each other, not being at peace with each other, out of pride. See, this was the sin. Uh, Back in verse 30 and following, what was the root issue that was going on with these disciples? Pride, probably not just the original sin, some could argue that pride is the root of all sin. Pride, they were arguing with one another. John said they were trying to stop a man who was trying to serve Jesus and do good in his name by casting out demons because he wasn't following the apostles. Pride, the sin of pride was causing them to argue with each other and not be at peace with each other. They could have been in peace with each other, but they weren't doing what Jesus said. Sin is the root of so many relational issues, isn't it? If I could deal with my pride, if I could deal with all the other kind of ways sin twists its way into my heart and life, I could have such better relationships with each other if we could do that. So why is it so important? Just kind of bring it to a close. Why is it so important to do what is right, to do what Jesus teaches, to pursue purity in our conduct? Three reasons, because my actions affect others and God's gonna hold me accountable for that, because sin and its consequences are serious. Turn to the end of any gospel and read about the death of Christ on the cross and reflect on that. And because God's purpose and work in my life right now is to refine me, to make him like him. Friends, the most precious thing in all the world is your eternal soul. This is why Jesus says in Mark 8, he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The great enemy of your soul is sin. I'd like to ask our worship team to go ahead and come up right now. As our worship team comes up, I wanna remind you of The model prayer that Jesus gave us. You remember, we call it the Lord's Prayer. He gave this model prayer about what what to pray. And one of the things he included in that prayer is the very thing that he's talking about in our teaching passage today. Isn't it interesting? He embedded that in the prayer that he gives as a model. And I wonder, would it be good for me to pray this prayer every day, to pray about this issue every single day? Because I know Through some window, some door in my life, temptation's going to come. It's going to keep coming. So I want to pray what Jesus said, and it's this from Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Should I seriously pray that every day? Let me lead us as we pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all these dear souls that you love, each of us so, so much, that you became sin in our place and died in our place, that we might not need to face the serious consequences of our sin. Help us realize how important it is as we seek to follow you to not just allow sin to continue to, to come into our hearts and our minds. Oh, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Help me Look to the way of escape that you provide and not just open the door to what's knocking to come into my heart and soil my precious soul. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for helping us understand how important it is to pursue purity. In Jesus' name, amen.